welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Hello, everyone. We are back with our study of the trial of Abinadi. Last episode, I began by talking about the difficulty of working within our modern chapter breaks, while at the same time trying to help you see Mormon's structure. And thus far, I've mostly just stuck to going chapter by chapter. But today, I'm going to break from that. I'm going to go with Mormon's original chapter, or the break that shows up in the original transcript of the Book of Mormon. You might have actually picked up on the fact that I ended the last episode, the episode on chapter 13, early. I stopped with the Benedi reciting the Ten Commandments, because that's where Mormon puts his chapter break. So today, we're going to go from Mosiah 13, verse 25, to Mosiah 16. Now that's a lot of material. It's basically Abinadi's message that he was commanded by the Lord to deliver. I've tried to keep this a manageable length, which means that there will be a little less walkthrough and a little more overview. Surely we'll slow down from time to time, but if we can see Abinadi's message as a whole, I think we'll be successful, and hopefully this will be of value to you. It'll still end up being a little long, though. To remind us of what has taken place so far, Abinadi has preached that if the people don't repent, the king and the people will be utterly destroyed. This is his second attempt at preaching repentance, and this time he gets arrested, thrown into prison, and then gets dragged before King Noah and his cadre of priests. And there's drama to this moment. There are important personalities that have all come together in this dynamic trial where the stakes are as high as they can get. Abinadi is deeply concerned for the lives of the people and is not shy about the need to reform society and repent, or the consequences will be that everybody dies. Noah is really concerned with maintaining the status quo. He likes to drink, he likes his gold, and he likes to exploit women. The priests are the ones that are driving this interrogation. They seem to sense the danger that Abinadi poses to their authority. They are the ones who are supposed to be wise. They are the ones who are supposed to be righteous. In fact, their whole control over the people is based on their efforts to flatter and deceive the people into believing that they have fulfilled prophecy and have successfully established Zion. It's in their best interest to discredit Abinadi and to maintain the illusion of righteous authority, which will in turn lead the people to continue to fund the vanity of the king's court. So the priests question Abinadi about a very important scripture from Isaiah 52 about the establishment of the kingdom. Messengers, the scripture says, are supposed to publish peace, not preach destruction. Abinadi successfully resists getting trapped in their questioning and turns it back on the priests and their view of the law of Moses. The priests give lip service to the law and use it as a smokescreen. Remember, the law is really complicated, far too complex for regular farmers who are probably illiterate to understand. But this complexity is just a shield for the fact that the priests don't live by the very heart of the law, which is the worship of God. They are idolatrous, and the way that Abinadi demonstrates that is that he quotes the Ten Commandments. He's only allowed to do this because he can't be taken by the guards until he has delivered his message, and he literally shone with exceeding luster, even as Moses. He is reciting the core of the law, 
as if he is the lawgiver. There's prophetic power that they can't deny, and Noah, his guards, and his priests have to listen before they can kill him. That's where we left off. Now it's time for Abinadi to get to the point. So, in chapter 13, verses 25 through 32, he reiterates that they haven't been keeping the law, regardless of what they want the people to think, and he returns to the heart of the problem. The priests have said that salvation comes by the law. That's why they think they've established the kingdom of God. They are the inheritors and administrators of God's law, and they can say whether or not the kingdom has been established. Apart from the fact that they aren't keeping the law, Abinadi is going to undermine the very premise that the law has the power to save. It's expedient to keep the law, yes, but one day the law will be done away with, and it'll be all about what it was always supposed to be about, the atonement, which God shall make for the sins and iniquities of his people. It's always been God who has redeemed the people. Earlier, Abinadi reminds them that it's God who led the people out of Egypt. It's always been about God doing the impossible and saving the people. The law was only there to remind the people to worship God. He describes it as very strict. It's in every detail of their lives to help them to remember that the only appropriate response to God's salvific and atoning love is to adore him, to worship him, to be devoted to him. That's why the law was given to the people, and they didn't get it. He doesn't say this, but it seems like the fact that Lehi and his family had to flee Jerusalem would be evidence enough for these priests that the people in Jerusalem weren't getting it done. Now we're getting to the message. It might seem like an obvious message to us, the reader, but maybe we should question our familiarity with it, because apparently Abinadi thinks that this message should be enough to completely change society. And I hope that we've seen that his society isn't that different than ours. So what's his message? Mosiah 13 verses 33 through 35 could really be his thesis statement. And it's this. Moses and all the prophets have spoken about this very thing, that God himself should come down among the children of men and go forth in mighty power upon the face of the earth and he should bring to pass the resurrection of the dead, and that he himself should be oppressed and afflicted. That's the message. You might be thinking, really? Don't they already know that? Haven't the Nephite prophets been preaching this very thing over and over again? I mean, this was Lehi's point, this was Nephi's point, Jacob's point, and on and on. I'm not going to speculate as to all the reasons that the Zenophites seem to have forgotten but I do want to focus on the fact that they have forgotten and how easy it is to forget. It only takes a generation, less really. A person can forget and remember millions of times throughout their life. A society moves at a slower pace though, but it's also harder to remember and change as a society as well, and the cost is perhaps greater. Maybe that is one of the reasons remembering is central to the sacrament, and the sacrament is meant to only be taken in communion with each other. It's really important that as a community, we remember what makes us a community in the church. What makes us a community is Christ's life, ministry, suffering, death, and resurrection. Presumably, that act of remembering the very thing that Abinadi wants his people to remember is enough to change everything about our community. Abinadi has already tipped his hand as to where he's going next, and it turns out that the priests set him up perfectly. Remember that the priest quoted Isaiah 52, 7 through 10, and Abinadi is just going to keep on reading into Isaiah 53. 
I've mentioned before that Abinadi and King Benjamin both draw heavily from Jacob. That'll become more explicit later on, but I actually suspect that it's already begun. In fact, some scholars have represented the differences between the way the priests read the scriptures versus the way that Abinadi reads the scriptures as kind of like the differences between Nephi's focus and Jacob's focus. Yes, Nephi spoke about the Messiah in beautiful ways, but it was in the larger context of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and the gathering of Israel and the establishment of the kingdom. You can see how the priest's view of themselves could be an exaggerated and selective reading of Nephi's, which we've already seen Zenith found importance in. Then Abinadi comes along straight up quoting Jacob with a laser focus on the atonement of Jesus Christ. Nephi and Jacob are closer to each other than the priests and Abinadi are, but it's a fun way to understand the divide. Anyways, the chapter Abinadi quotes in chapter 14 is Isaiah 53, and it's called The Song of the Suffering Servant. This song, or poem, is about God's servant. Some scholars think it refers to all of Israel. Some think to a particular prophet. And Christians have interpreted this to be the Messiah. The poem actually begins at the end of Isaiah 52 and describes this mangled, beaten, sickly servant who bears our griefs, carries our sorrows, is wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and heals us through his wounds. Isaiah compares this servant to a lamb brought to the slaughter. It's beautiful writing. The point is that whoever this servant is, you wouldn't think of him as the one the Lord would work through. It makes no sense for a plant to spring up out of dry, parched earth. And we certainly don't have a habit of looking to the most stricken of our society as our heroes, let alone the very ones who will heal everyone else. I suppose one way to think about this is that Israel always imagined this conquering lion of Judah who would come along and free the people. And the image that Isaiah is putting forth here is one of a suffering lamb. Isaiah 53 is beautiful, and there's a ton that has been said on it. You should really just go ahead and read it. But we're going to move along to Mosiah 15, verses 1 through 9, where Abinadi begins to interpret Isaiah 52 and 53. He begins by repeating his thesis. I would that you should understand that God himself shall come down among the children of men and shall redeem his people. But then he expands on it. And because he dwelleth in the flesh, he shall be called the Son of God. And having subjected the flesh to the will of the Father, being the Father and the Son. Now let's pause there. We're actually wading into some pretty tricky verses here, so we'll need to slow down a bit. Abinadi just called Christ the Father and the Son, and that's not how we usually describe him as a member of the Godhead. Now, if we believed in classical Trinitarian doctrine, we might just blow through this, but we don't. So here's my advice, and I'll give it as a fellow reader, not as someone who has quote-unquote cracked the code. Don't read these verses as a description of what we would call the Godhead. I don't think that Abinadi is trying to answer that question. It just doesn't fit into his broader efforts here. He's already given us his thesis, and we know that he believes that if his people were to believe in the Messiah who would come, they would see the need to repent and follow him, and that that repentance would spare them from the consequences of their destruction. I really don't think he's interrupting all of that to dive into a debate about the relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost that really came about in the centuries following Jesus' death and resurrection. So, I think we should suspend that question and try and focus on Abinadi's purpose here, 
which is to get them to believe in Christ. Okay, so Abinadi has just called Christ the Son of God and the Father, and he adds the Father because he was conceived by the power of God and the Son because of the flesh, thus becoming the Father and the Son. And they are one, yea, the very eternal Father of heaven and earth. And thus the flesh, becoming subject to the Spirit, or the Son to the Father, being one God, suffereth temptation, and yieldeth not to temptation, but suffereth himself to be mocked, and scourged, and cast out, and disowned by his people. It's still a little confusing, but it seems to me that Abinadi is trying to describe what it means for a God to become subject to all of the various aspects of mortality. And you know what? I think that when it really comes down to it, we struggle with that idea. We talk about Jesus living a perfect life, but we have no frame of reference for what that means. I have three young boys. I have moments when I look at them and see perfection. They are beautiful and sweet and full of life and curiosity. You sometimes hear them yelling in the back of this podcast. Cormac McCarthy in his book The Road has a father describe his son as the very word of God or the perfect expression of God. And I understand that feeling. But they also need to fight every now and then. They need to make mistakes, and they do. They need to test boundaries and to do stupid things and learn that some things will annoy people and some things will make people realize just how much you care about them. That's how you become a human being. Wouldn't Jesus have had to go through that? Does the fact that in all likelihood he argued with his siblings and disobeyed his parents and learned through experience how to test social boundaries make him any less perfect? I have no idea when Jesus found out what he would have to go through to bring about the atonement, but it probably gutted him. Maybe the problem that we are running into is that we are trying to square what we know about humanity with what we think we know about God, when we would really be more successful in trying to understand God by what we know about humanity. That actually fits pretty well here with what Abinadi is saying. God's going to reveal himself to us as a human being, in the flesh, subject to all of the same suffering and temptations that all of us are subject to. That'll be the perfect expression of God. Abinadi sprinkles in language from Isaiah 53 throughout this section. Christ is the sheep who will be led, crucified, slain, and the will of the Son, his humanity, will be swallowed up in the will of the Father, his divinity. And, he says, Thus God breaketh the bands of death, having gained the victory over death, giving the Son power to make intercession for the children of men, having his bowels filled with mercy, being filled with compassion toward the children of men, standing betwixt them and justice, having broken the bands of death, taking upon himself their iniquity and their transgressions, having redeemed them and satisfied the demands of justice. I can't help but think of the story of Adam and Eve here, where the human condition starts. There's this image in the book of Genesis of a flaming sword that separates humanity from the tree of life. Nephi and Lehi see a flaming chasm, and I think that those flames might represent justice. I've read this quote before, but it bears repeating. This is from Terrell Givens' brief theological introduction into 2 Nephi. He's speaking about Jacob in this quote, but that kind of fits since we've already pointed out Jacob's influence on Abinadi. The Book of Mormon, he says, suggests that we've misunderstood what justice means. For Book of Mormon prophets, justice is neither some unimpeachable cosmic universal 
nor the inflexible standards of a legalistic heavenly monarch. It is, rather, another name for what, from a human perspective, is simply the honoring of human choice. Genuine moral agency must entail genuine consequences. If choice is to be more than an empty gesture of will, there must be some guarantee that any given choice will eventuate in the natural consequences connected with that choice, end quote. I don't think that any of us can honestly say that we understand the natural consequences of our choices, and we certainly have no way of healing every wound, intended or otherwise, that we cause. We need intercession. We are Adam and Eve, kept from the tree of life by the consequences of our human condition, and we need somebody who can embrace the full impact of those consequences and do so filled with mercy and compassion. Noah and his priests have built their kingdom on selfish pleasure. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That outward display of pressure is actually driven by an inward fear of their impending death. Abinadi is proposing a people built on the idea of a life after and freed from the bands of death. A community built on resurrection, allowing its members to treat others with the mercy and compassion we receive from Christ because we are liberated from fear. So in verses 10 through 18, Abinadi poses a question to the priests. This servant, spoken of in Isaiah 53, who shall be his seed? In other words, who are his children? He doesn't wait for them to answer. The children of Christ, and I hope you're seeing the connection to Benjamin here, are those that hear the words of the prophets and the prophets themselves. And these are they who have published peace, who have brought good tidings of good, who have published salvation and said unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Do you see what he has just done? He took the scripture that Noah and his priests were using to justify themselves, Isaiah 52, 7-10. Then he quoted Isaiah 53 as a witness that God would sacrifice himself. That's the actual good news and glad tidings. And now he's cycled back to answer their original question about Isaiah 52, but he's doing it using Isaiah 53. It's pretty brilliant. Glad tidings and good news, like Isaiah is describing, isn't flattery, like the priests have used to control the people. The glad tidings, the gospel, the good news, is that God reigneth, and not just over earthly enemies like Babylon or the Lamanites, but over death itself. How beautiful upon the mountains were the feet of the prophets because they testified of Christ. How beautiful upon the mountains are those who are still testifying, including Abinadi himself, and those who will testify from then on, including maybe Alma, who will be changed through hearing the words of Abinadi. Mormon will actually cycle back to that. And finally, now this is a direct quote from Abinadi, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that is the founder of peace, yea, even the Lord, who has redeemed his people, yea, him who has granted salvation unto his people, that is, Christ. I guess one of Abinadi's points is that communities need to choose what they will accept as glad tidings. Is vanity and bravado sufficient? Is bragging enough? Will that really bring us peace? Or do we need something that goes all of the way through mortality? We're going to pick up the pace throughout the next few sections. I think we've built a pretty solid foundation to understand Abinadi's message. Verses 19 through 31 
are all about the resurrection, and much of what Abinadi says here will be repeated by future prophets in the Book of Mormon, particularly Alma the Younger. The point here is that Abinadi hasn't stopped interpreting Isaiah 52, 7 through 10. Those scriptures describe a kingdom filled with joy, where the waste places sing out, and the Lord has redeemed and comforted his people so publicly and on such a global scale that all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. What that looks like in the minds of Noah and his priests is that they get richer, more powerful, and have more wives. What that looks like for Abinadi is a universal resurrection. It looks like I jumped the gun a little in bringing in Adam and Eve because that's where Abinadi goes next in chapter 16, verses 1 through 15. Obviously, he does it better than I could, but the point here is that the issues that Christ is coming to address aren't exclusive to the Xenophytes. So the fulfillment of those prophecies, the solution to those issues, also can't be limited to the Xenophytes. They aren't even exclusive to the Israelites. The obstacles of mortality are shared by everyone who is born into this world. So the solution needs to be appropriately scaled. It needs to literally swallow up the sting of death, making Christ the life and the light of the world. Not only that, but the consequences of this mortal life don't end with death. The life that we've created through our choices continues, and if they be good, to the resurrection of endless life and happiness, and if they be evil, to the resurrection of endless damnation, being delivered up to the devil who hath subjected them, which is damnation. This might all sound pretty harsh to our modern sensibilities, but I've said in early episodes that this is just the truest truth. There's no magic Jesus pill, no magical externality that steps in and overrides our choices. If I want to live eternally with my family when we're resurrected, I need to work at that every day. I have to learn how to be a member of an eternal family. Abinadi ends by telling the priests, And now are ye not to tremble and repent of your sins. And remember, only in and through Christ ye can be saved. Therefore, if ye teach the law of Moses... Also teach that it is a shadow of things which are to come. Teach them that redemption cometh through Christ the Lord, who is the very eternal Father. Amen. And that's it for Abinadi's message. If you've made it this far, that means you stuck with me through all of that. Thank you. It might not seem like it, but we went pretty quickly through this trial. There's a lot more that could have and maybe should have been addressed. But I wanted to give you a sense of Abinadi's message as a whole. My final plea would be to resist just making this message about an internal spiritual experience with Christ. That is incredibly important, but it's not Abinadi's point. He wants to save his people. That's why he's willing to die for this message. He knows that if they don't change how they've organized and run their kingdom, they will have to endure utter destruction here and the eternal consequences in the hereafter. It isn't that God is just waiting to destroy the Xenophytes. It's that in mortality, crisis is just baked in. There will always be opposition. Communities that are founded on vanity will not be able to weather that storm. But communities founded on the Messiah can be unified, loving, caring, humble, and hopeful. And that is a tool chest for human flourishing here and forever. It's not like the Lamanites just disappear when the Nephites get righteous. The Nephites are just better prepared to manage crisis when it presents itself and even transform that crisis through Christ-like service and love. And that's a message for us.
crisis will come. And right now at the time of recording, this is during the coronavirus and we are under the strain of crisis, the varying degrees in all of our lives. But this is not a unique time. This has happened before. It'll happen again. Pandemics are part of mortality. But what crisis does is it exposes how unified we are or how divided we are. And Abinadi's point is that if you're going to flourish in this life, if your family's going to flourish in this life, if your nation's going to flourish in this life, it needs to be built on the knowledge that all of us share a human condition and that God himself came to sacrifice himself and was resurrected so that we could all overcome that condition through love of one another and love of God. Now, somebody will believe Abinadi. As far as we know, only one person. His name is Alma. And he will try and found a community based on this Christ-like self-sacrifice. And he'll call it a church. And that's the story that Mormon is telling. The story of the Church of Christ. We'll talk to you next time. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at soundcloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom. Mm-hmm.